Welcome to the Chief Disruptor podcast. My name is Gabriel O'Brien, Senior Researcher at Chief Disruptor. This series of podcasts highlights and explores the disruptive strategies, mindsets and technologies taking place across blue chip organizations, startups, scale-ups and the public sector. On the podcast, I am joined by disruptors, innovators and change makers from across the Chief Disruptor community. This week, we've got something extra special for you. We are jumping into a keynote recording of the Chief of the General Staff, General Sir Patrick Sanders. The Chief of the General Staff, or CGS for short, is the professional head of the British Army with responsibility for developing and generating military capability from an integrated army of regulars and reservists and for maintaining the fighting effectiveness, efficiency and morale of the service. Sir Patrick has commanded on operations in Northern Ireland, Kosovo, Bosnia, Iraq and Afghanistan and has undertaken operational and strategic roles in the UK, US and Iraq. He was promoted to general in May 2019 and commanded UK Strategic Command until May 2022 when he became CGS. Before we jump into the discussion... I'm joined by Richard Morgan, the founder of Chief Disruptor Defence, who has founded our defence sub-community and is here to tell us a little bit more about what we have in store for you. Um, so, Richard, firstly, thank you for joining the podcast. Uh, it's a pleasure to have you join us. Um, before we jump into this episode, uh, could you give us a bit of context behind the keynote and the wider defence context behind it? Uh, yes, certainly. This was recorded during the Army Digital and Data Conference, which we ran in partnership with the British Army a few weeks ago, at which the inaugural Army Digital and Data Plan was launched. The plan sets out the Army's vision of becoming a data-centric, digitally optimised Army by 2030, improving warfighting competitiveness and corporate effectiveness, and delivering advantage across all domains. Uh, CGS kindly delivered the opening keynote and participated in Q&A. And it's that that we're going to listen to shortly. Sounds great. And uh, having attended the conference, uh, it was a pleasure to hear CGS's keynote firsthand and get a feel for the excitement and energy behind the digital data plan from both army and industry. Um, this event was obviously a chief disruptor defense event, Richard. Could you tell us a bit more about chief disruptor defense and what you have set out to achieve? Uh, so with the defence sub-community, we've aimed to emulate what uh, Chief Disruptor has been doing across other sectors for uh, many years, namely arranging activities which enable our members to connect with each other during networking, learn from thought leaders and from each other, and to participate in workshops and roundtable discussions to help them on their disruption journey. So to that end, we have delivered a range of webinars, workshops, panel discussions and conferences in partnership with the Ministry of Defence. Great stuff. And and for those listeners who might be interested in joining, who can join and how? Uh, so if anyone is interested in joining the defence sub-community, be they from within the UK Armed Forces or other international armed forces uh, for that matter, or from the wider um, UK defence industry um, or academia, uh, please email us at uh, defence at chiefdisruptor.com. That's defence at chiefdisruptor.com. Great stuff. Um, and if we're looking forward, what can we expect next from the community? So our next defence activity is a webinar on Reserve Forces 2030, which is taking place on the 29th of June. This is the third in a series of Reserve Forces 2030 webinars, 
which we have delivered uh, with the Ministry of Defence. And this one's going to be focusing in particular on digital and data and the value of reservists to defence. Interesting stuff. I look forward to it. Um, so without further ado, um, let's hear from General Sir Patrick himself. Thanks, Richard. Thank you. Anyway, my sincere thanks to you, Jeremy Taylor and the team, um, team of Chief Disruptor for offering this platform today in collaboration with my own team for the Army Headquarters. I'd also particularly like to thank all of you as partners uh, across defence, wider government and industry for taking the time to be with us today. Your attendance really does matter because, of course, it's only by working together that we're going to be able to meet the challenges we're faced in, in a particularly tumultuous period. So to most of us, the conflict in Ukraine is one that we experience through the portal of a smartphone or a tablet. And it, of course, as we all know, is a war of grainy drone and headcam footage shared across Telegram, Twitter or WhatsApp or other platforms. It's a war experienced now at the speed of a data file download or a page refresh. Now, paradoxically, much of this digital footage we see also reminds us that a land war sees soldiers engaging in a close battle. It's a fundamentally human endeavour of extreme violence, confusion and chaos. And you can see and feel the friction and the fear through the screen. We see shovels and trenches, we see bayonets and boots, and we see armour and mines. And you can't look at the images of Wagner dead lying in the frozen mud of Bakhmut or the burnt out tank hogs on the road to Kiev without thinking and reflecting about the blood and suffering of some of the great 20th century battlefields. But to simply think of the conflict in these terms, of course, would be a mistake. And to do so would be to ignore the profound change to the character of war that is underway, a heavily contested electromagnetic spectrum, the centrality of data, the exponential increase in the speed and the volume of targeting at a battlefield rendered virtually transparent, now, I'm particularly proud of the role that the UK and our partners have played in our support to Ukraine, including, of course, the gifting of battle-winning capabilities to our friends in Kyiv and across Ukraine. But as both the Ukrainians and the Russians are learning, as they prepare to war, enter what will be a crucial second summer, in a battlefield where proliferation of sensors ensures there's no sanctuary, speed really matters. And to survive and ultimately win, an army must now process and share data faster than its opponent and across all domains. It must cut down the time it takes for targeting details to be sent from sensor to shooter, the kill chain. It must cut through the friction of data saturation to enable effective decision making. And it must do all of this while protecting its own networks and infrastructure across the electromagnetic spectrum, both in the fight, but also back here in the home base. And we're already seeing the effects of what you might describe as algorithmic warfare in Ukraine and how quickly the, that armies, armies that are in contact are forced to adapt or to face defeat. And we must also be ready for the revolution that AI, machine learning and quantum will bring to our profession. And I offer what I'm describing here is not just the business of deep technical specialists. It is increasingly the responsibility of the whole force and down to the very lowest level. So what does this mean for us in the British Army? Well, first, we must recognise that our data is rapidly becoming our vital ground. And the inaugural Army Data and Digital Plan 
is a strong step towards doing so. But we must continue to drive to ensure that the exploitation of data becomes an intuitive part of our business across the whole force, on operations and in barracks, from intelligence analysis and logistics to HR and contract management. It should become routine for commanders to base their decision-making on live data taken from a multitude of sources. Now, to help them in processing and exploitation, we've already deployed AI solutions on operations, and we're establishing the Army AI Center. But as we accelerate the integration of AI to our targeting cycle, we've also got to concurrently wrestle with the moral and the ethical dilemmas that it brings. While the concept of war as a human endeavor has always been axiomatic, as technology becomes more pervasive and decision and reaction times become measured in milliseconds, having humans in or even on the loop may invite disaster, especially when you're up against AI-enabled adversaries. And so with decision-making no longer a human-dominated feature of warfare, does it change not just the character, but perhaps the very nature of war? Secondly, we must ensure that our workforce has the relevant skill set. And it's not just about our soldiers becoming digitally fit. We must look at the potential for data specialists to be seconded to us from industry. And we've got to incentivize you as contractors and ensure that we create the fora that allow the wealth of talent across our ranks and those of the civil service to interact with academia, our industry colleagues and our allies and partners. The fora that breed innovation and change. Third, we must revisit our procurement and acquisition. The armed forces of Ukraine have shown just what is possible when some of the beloved orthodoxies of peacetime acquisition and R&D are left behind. And we should also seek to reset the balance between exquisite military-grade technologies and commodity capabilities. Cost, may, time may preclude cost and or trump cost and performance. Now is the time to take risk. We shouldn't wait to be confronted by the crucible of war to do so. And finally, I come with a plea to those of you representing industry. Share your data with us. Just as we can't be lighting the factory furnaces across the nation on the eve of war, we also can't be only just opening up access to our data warehouses. We must be having the sort of conversations around information access and national defence that some had believed or wished uh, were confined to the history books. And your data allows us to be better. It allows us to win when called upon. And to put it simply, we need to get better at partnering with you and something that JC will explore further later on. So you can see there's a lot to be grappling with, but I think today presents us with a fantastic opportunity to do so. And I know you'll use it to engage with these challenges, to challenge us and also to challenge yourselves. And I could not be more resolute in my desire for an army that's learning the lessons from the war in Ukraine and that emerges from a period of accelerated investment, more lethal, more survivable, and able to fight more effectively in a joint force. It's the army our nation needs, and it's one that our soldiers deserve. And this aspiration will only be reached if we embrace data. But to do that, I need your help. And that's why the army data and digital plan and your time today is so important. Thank you. Thank you very much for that, sir. Um, CGS has kindly agreed to take questions. Uh, so if you could raise your hands if you'd like to ask a question, and then just a reminder to start by saying who you are and which organization you're from. So who would like to ask the first question? 
Hello, sir. Izzy Bangor from Gartner. Um, you mentioned about peacetime versus um, wartime procurement. Is it that you're saying there needs to be a change to the policy or is it how the policy is operated in terms of being able to purchase um, in an environment of wartime? Well, I think it's, it's, it's that and it's more as well. Um, so why is it? Well, I think we know the answer to it, but why is it that we can we can bring into service capabilities uh, and put them in the hands of Ukrainian soldiers, sailors, um, and aviators um, in a matter of months, but we can't do that for our own forces. And, and the answer really comes down to a number of things. First of all, industrial capacity. Um, secondly, procurement rules. But thirdly, and perhaps most importantly, it's our risk appetite, and that's a shared risk appetite. It's risk around how we, you know, how much risk we're prepared to take with commercial, with capability, and with, frankly, the use of public money, but also risk around the capability itself. And I think one of the things that Ukraine is teaching us is that um, you don't need to, you don't need to be at war to do this. So I've always been, I've been particularly struck, for example by how Sweden was able to effectively um, remove lots of the policy impediments to the rapid acquisition. I think they, some, there are some uh, Baltic nations that have done the same and make a series of, place a series of orders um, that have been started delivering very quickly. You could point to a success that we've had, which is the replacement um, capability for the AS90s that we've gifted and I'm, I know I'm conscious I'm talking about heavy metal here rather than digital, but I think the lessons apply. And we were able to secure a contract uh, and an agreement with uh, with Sweden, you know, I think three months to replace the AS90. So it shows what you can do when you are prepared to break some of those rules, to embrace, embrace risk. And whereas a user, we are really clear about what the key driver is when in the performance cost and time equation, and to that you can add also um, uh, the land industrial strategy. Jack, get an answer in your question. Do you want to come back? I think it does. Um, I, I suppose it, it's um, who can make that decision about the change, because it, it seems to be that it's made under pressure and only seems to have come about under pressure. So is this something that can be done as almost a conscious decision now moving forward? So, so I think we find ourselves, you and I find ourselves at different ends, you know, your sort of customer supplier relationship here, but, but we're frustrated by what goes on between us. Now, so we need to be realistic about this. As, as um, uh, a sort of senior American I was talking to reminded us, you know, this is public money. This is taxpayers' money that we're talking about. Um, and so we, should, we shouldn't kid ourselves that there is going to be no scrutiny and there are going to be no rules and the commercial rules and that a degree of commercial scrutiny doesn't apply. But I think I'm reasonably optimistic that, that both the experience that we had around rapid procurement um, in, during COVID and then what we are learning in the defence sector as well from Ukraine has, has struck a chord um, in those elements of the MOD in Whitehall 
that have got the power to release some of these constraints. I can't point exactly to when, but it does require us to take risk on both sides. General, uh, thank you very much. Good morning. Uh, Graham Pearson from Amazon Web Services. Um, uh, my question is this, uh, as the army uh, experiments, innovates, explores these new data and digital technologies and opportunities that um, we're all facing now, what are your thoughts on how the army is going to measure the effectiveness of how these um, technologies and capabilities are being implemented, how your operational effectiveness uh, is measured and can be seen to improve as you apply these different opportunities that face you? So one of the things that, thank you, uh, Graham. Um, one of the things that we're trying to describe are a set of um, targets, objectives for how we expect to be able to fight if we were called upon to do so in the next two or three years. Um, and the field army has been doing some work, um, you know, imaginatively described as how we fight in 26. Um, which uh, points to what we expect to be able to do in a NATO context in about two or three years' time. Um, and let's do it for instance um, here. So many of you will have been exposed to some of the particular success that uh, Headquarters 18th Airborne Corps under the banner of Task Force Dragon was able to deliver by exploiting cloud computing, cloud technology, um, the networks and sensors, so that you had the sensor-to-shooter links that increased the rate of targeting um, and the capacity of targeting exponentially to the extent that we weren't short of target targets, we were short, short of effectors. That, that is something that was being done um, perhaps with you and, and some of the room um, as commercial partners earlier on this year at the back end of last year. We should be able to do something similar in the UK within the next two or three years. And if we can't, then that will be a measure of failure. So I think we set ourselves some very specific use cases. There is one, there will be others as well that become the measures of effectiveness and measures of success. Um, and those in themselves, I think, will become the foundations for the sort of techniques and capabilities that we expect to be fielding in the 2030s as well. Do you want to come back, Graham? Uh, General, thank you. Um... Uh, so yes, TF Dragon was successful, and certainly the focus around digital employment has been very much sensitive to shooter and, and dealing with that very sort of sharp end of the battle space. Uh, I'd like maybe to um, uh, point you to think about um, something more more deep, if you like, if you if I dare say say that um, joint defence doctrine. If you go into JDC and, and buried in the middle of that, uh, there's still um, a fairly clear exposition of the principles of war. Uh, and if you go each through each ten of those things. It would seem to me if you're going to be successful in war, then you need to be successful in each of those 10 things. And some of those things don't relate directly to sensitive issues. So, for example, maintenance of morale, logistics. It would seem to me if the army needs to really measure itself against how well it's doing in the digital space, if it's going to win and wage war successfully, you need to be successful in each of those 10 things. So you might want to think about how you measure yourself against those 10 principles. 
Yeah, I, I, I think that's right. Um, and I was giving you one narrow example um, to try to be to illustrate what you were getting at. But yeah, I think that's that's a helpful suggestion. Thank you. All right, thank you. Uh, James Park from Oracle. Uh, good morning, uh, General. Um, you talked about sharing our data from the industry point of view. Um, as, a, as, as operating within the, um, as Oracle within the MOD and also as a, as a reserve officer, I see significant silos within the MOD in terms of sharing data. Uh, and these are not technical issues. These can all be addressed, but actually more of a cultural issues. And I'd be interested in your view on how uh, the Army is overcoming this, et cetera, uh, in, that, in that space. Thank you. Over. I mean, you, I think you're probably closer to it than I am. I think we can both recognise the, 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 the diagnosis. Um, it's the prescription that I'm interested in. Now, of course, what Strategic Command is trying to do by uh, laying out the digital and data standards and by in its pursuit of multi-domain integration uh, and the MDI blueprint is to ensure that we do break down those silos and that we're also able to browse down and reach up um, across levels of classification, and it's what um, the above se the secret and the above secret cloud strategy should be getting after. Um, I think I'd, I'd look to you to point to where you think we can move faster, or point us to where there are some particular impediments, um, and it may be something that is worth pursuing in the room today. Over. I think you're working. Yeah, I think fundamentally, yeah, you're right. I think it is a, is a as a cultural as a cultural issue rather than necessarily a technological issue. I think fundamentally, you have to. Uh, there are different issues within the different silos that need to be addressed. And I think it's, it's it can only be addressed actually working closely um, with the relevant uh, areas across across defence. So you can actually break down some of these barriers at the end of the day. So um, I think, and we'll probably get to some of those to, later on today around the roundtable discussions. But uh, thank you. Good morning, General. My name is Rod Morrison. I'm represented from C Prime, which is a Golden Sachs company. My question is more the private sector, they're all kind of fighting on war, are struggling to survive. And the main thing we hear about is that getting a product to market really quick to before we saw the big whales disappear like blockbusters have. Um, one of the things is you touched on about the silos. But I think one of the things that maybe the military is struggling is attracting the right skill sets and retaining them because you can't compete against the civilian private sector salaries and ways of working and ways of living. And I wonder how you're going to tackle that at scale if you want to move very fast. Well, I think as all of you in the room will, will be noticing yourselves, um, it's a particularly tight labour market at the moment. Um, and if you're working in the public sector, um, as you as you observe, it's you know the, the competition for talent is extremely uh, tight. So, so first of all, there's a whole army personnel strategy um, that we are uh, sort of rolling out that is designed to get at some of the barriers that uh, that allow us to exploit people's talent through the whole course of their professional lives. So that gets after things like lateral entry, the ability to move in and out of the public sector. Um, I'm also struck by success that some other nations have had in this area. And, and often people are attracted to the armed forces or to public service earlier in their lives. Um, 
for a couple of reasons. First of all, because it lays down some foundations in a CV and teaches some core skills that are actually become very marketable later on. But secondly, you know, we, we can offer uniquely um, some, uh, some job satisfaction that it's difficult to compete with in the private sector. So um, in my last role, I was responsible for establishing and growing um, our offensive cyber capabilities in the UK. And one of the models that we looked to was what the Israeli Defense Forces do in growing their own offensive and indeed defensive cyber workforce. Now, they have the benefit of conscription um, and, of course, an economy that is built on startups and unicorns, particularly digital ones, which means that the very best people in society tend to want to go and work in that sector in the IDF. But nevertheless, what causes people to join, to join and then often want to stay is because despite the fact that they're not necessarily getting the same salaries, they know that they can come in, out of, in and out of that sector and they can operate against targets, real targets, um, and have a real effect in the world in a way that you couldn't if you were working in the gaming industry. So working together with Strategic Command, um, and, and this is a long-term piece of work, beginning to try to target digital and STEM talent, um, grow that really from a very early stage through an academic career. Um, and I'm talking, you know, almost sort of single figures, digits of age through the course of a career, combine that with an offer that might be an in-service degree and a fixed period of service thereafter, and then the ability to move in and out, begins to get at some of the the talent um, that we're going to need. But that in itself won't go far enough. Um, and, and hence why I think fundamentally rethinking the interface between industry and, uh, and the armed forces and also how we can use reserves begins to at least meet some of that, uh, that requirement. Um, we're also going to continue to recruit people because it's one of the the, the bits of value added that the army brings from some of the most deprived parts in the UK and then develop those skills through the course of a career. So there will continue to be some bottom-up feed as well. I'm always struck by the fact that I think it's 20, I think the figure is 20% um, of the people who go to the army foundation college at Harrogate as apprentices um, arrive without uh, any academic qualifications at all and have often been excluded from school, and they all leave with a GCA, GCSE in maths and English. And that is, that is value that is added back into society. So that was a long answer, but it's a, it's a big subject. I think we're now out of time, unfortunately. Um, but thank you very much for your time this morning, sir. Uh, I do hope next time you'll be able to join us physically. But thank you for joining us, as you have done uh, online, and for answering the questions so candidly and at length. Well, that concludes this episode of the Chief Disruptor podcast. Thanks so much to CGS for his contributions at the conference and for all those from the British Army that were involved. Thanks also to Richard for joining me briefly at the start of this podcast. It was nice to have him on. Um, as Richard mentioned, if you are interested in joining the defense sub-community, please email us at defense at chiefdisruptor.com.
com that's defense at chiefdisruptor.com and if you're interested in learning more about chief disruptor generally visit chiefdisruptor.com thanks so much i look forward to having you along next time